Hi, welcome to the Dewey Decimal Podcast. I'm your host, Phil Moorhart, Associate Editor of American Libraries, the magazine of the American Library Association. We have a great program lined up today, and um, uh, it's one that we've had in the works for quite some time now. And to be honest with you, when we were programming this episode, getting everything together, when the idea struck, the uh, <laughs> the world was a much different place than it is today. Um, but hopefully, hopefully, as you'll see, uh, today's episode is applicable to where we find ourselves in this place and time in history. Um, a couple of years back, I read a fascinating book by Chris Taylor. He's an editor at Mashable. And it's called How Star Wars Conquered the Universe, The Past, Present, and Future of a Multi-Billion Dollar Franchise. And the book really just, it's about that. It's this massive book detailing the power and reach of the Star Wars franchise, this multi-billion dollar entertainment industry that's really changed how we view media, cinema, merchandising, politics, philosophy, and even religion. And... Uh, it continues to do that, really, with the success of The Force Awakens a couple years back and uh, Rogue One that was just released back in December can attest. Star Wars is still big, and it's not going anywhere at all. Um, and it's a business, yes, but it's also this ubiquitous force with a reach and vitality <clears throat> Excuse me, that far outstretches its monetary worth. This is best exemplified, I think, in the story that uh, Taylor uses to open his book. It's uh, he and his mashable co-workers, they set out to find a Star Wars virgin, someone who has never in his or her life had any contact with Star Wars whatsoever. Uh, they have no, someone who would have no knowledge of it in any way, shape or form. It would, Star Wars is a completely foreign concept to this person. And uh, the task proved really much harder than they imagined. Even when they did find someone, he was a 77th World War II vet living on a Navajo Indian reservation, um, even when this person did see the film, uh, he recognized aspects of the film. Um, and it, it was kind of a, fa- a little side note here's a fascinating segment. They uh, su- had the film subtitled Into Navajo for the first time, and they screened it in the reservation. And even when this, this gentleman saw the film for the first time, he recognized parts of the film, and he knew of it. It was the, um, the archetype was recognizable, the hero's journey, um, most notably as detailed in jo- uh, the works by Joseph Campbell. It's this Manichaean fight for, of good versus evil, the struggle, and eventual triumph over adversity. That is what's make, what, that's what really makes Star Wars universal. It's uh, something that we can really look to, I think, as a guide to what we're going through today. Uh, now, let's not beat around the bush here. Um, the parallels are obvious. You have a menacing empire led by a brutal thug in his powerful ideologically driven mentor they threaten to destroy and dominate and subjugate everything and everyone in their path and they almost get away with it until they're thwarted by a fierce and determined resistance a rebellion and it's this message that the good fight prevails but sometimes it must be a fight a rebellion for good that's what we have to remember as we traverse the next couple of years should be our driving force as they say with that in mind, let's get to the episode. Today, on the Dewey Decimal Podcast, I welcome three guests who inhabit interesting, distinct places within the Star Wars universe. First, we have Ann Newman. She's a general manager of Rancho Obi-Wan. It's a nonprofit in California that collects, conserves, and exhibits Star Wars memorabilia and artifacts. Ann and I discuss the Rancho Obi-Wan collection, its organization, how she came to work there, and much more. Finally, or Next, I talk to Alan Kalachi. When Alan's not working at a literacy librarian at Rancho Cucamonga Library in California, he's organizing the library's Star Wars Day. It's one of the largest Star Wars library events in the United States. 
We chatted about the event, its genesis, what goes on there, and what a library can do, what you can do, if you want to throw your own Star Wars-themed program at your library. And finally, I talked to Saul Drake. Saul is the project director for the Smithsonian traveling exhibition Star Wars and the Power of the Costume, which is taking costumes from the Star Wars films to museums across the U.S. and presenting them for both their finery and detail, but also showing how they were developed and how they work within the Star Wars universe. But first, a word from our sponsor. Get in the Star Wars spirit with your favorite intergalactic adventures on posters and bookmarks available from ALA Graphics. From droids and clone troopers to origami Yoda characters, the ALA store has got you covered. In the words of Yoda, shop, you must. You know, I told them that voice wouldn't work. I did it anyways, and it didn't work, but I think you get the point. If you need something Star Wars related for your library, maybe a poster with C-3PO, R2-D2, and BB-8, for instance, there's a great one that ALA's graphics department produced in conjunction with Lucasfilm and Disney, and it would look great on your library wall. So head to the ALA store, pick one up, and many, many other things Star Wars related. That's alastore.ala.org. Ann Newman has a dream job. As general manager of Rancho Obi-Wan, she helps curate and organize thousands of Star Wars toys, merchandise, and bits of memorabilia that are all housed in Rancho Obi-Wan's complex in rural Sonoma County, California. I mean, really, take a second here. Close your eyes and just imagine what this place must look like inside. And Ann gets to work there. Here's our talk. And as a, as a child of the of the seventies and, and the eighties, whose youth and I guess maybe even life, I guess I could say, is probably been you know influenced greatly by by Star Wars and Star Wars memorabilia and Star Wars toys. I just say that I'm completely jealous and envious of your job. <laughs> it seems like <laughs> thank it's, you. It's like the, a dream job for I guess for many people, myself included. Um, for our listeners, can you? Give us a little bit of background about Rancho Obi-Wan and all the things that that go on at that place. I can. Let me start with the owner. His name is Steve Sansweet. And uh, Steve was a born collector, just like many of us were. And he collected swizzle sticks and comic books and baseball cards. And he really loved science fiction. Um, he became a journalist for a profession, and he started collecting space toys collected uh, Buck Rogers and NASA, Star Trek, for, please forgive him, Star Trek. Mm-hmm. And uh, when Star Wars came around, he just started adding those pieces to his space toy collection. Um, but by the time Empire Strikes Back came around, he was completely hooked on Star Wars. Uh, eventually, he became a journalist at the Wall Street Journal. <clears throat> and he was there in 1992 when Lucasfilm was wanting to write a book about collectibles, Star Wars collectibles, and Steve Cold called them and said, hey, if anybody's going to write that book, it should be me. And they said, who are you? Uh, that book ended up being the first of 17 books on Star Wars concept to screen to collectibles uh, that Steve wrote. And eventually Lucasfilm asked him to uh, come work for them as a guaranteed one-year job uh, traveling the world talking about the special editions. And that was in 1996. Um, That job became a 15-year job. So he needed to move to the Bay Area from Los Angeles. And uh, his collection was already huge by then. And he really wanted a place 
that would hold everything together. <clears throat> he had a three-story house in Los Angeles and five-story lockers. Um, Petaluma, which is just an hour and a half from Skywalker Ranch here, uh, just happened to be the former largest egg-producing region in the world, and there were all these old chicken farms with huge redwood hen houses. Uh, he found one of these um, and bought it, and it eventually became Rancho Obi-Wan in 1998. But at that time, um, he only showed the collection to family and friends. Um, when he retired from Lucasfilm in 2011, um, we decided we would found a 501c3 nonprofit so that we could share the collection with the world. Um, and our mission is inspiration. And that's how we came to be. We just celebrated our five-year anniversary as a nonprofit, uh, giving tours about twice a week. Oh, excellent. Now, how did you come to Rancho Obi-Wan? What's, what's, what's your background? Uh, um, I have a master's degree in geography, oh. which seemingly has nothing to do with Star Wars. Um, but as a student, I became trained in database design. And that became my profession. So I've worked in FileMaker, Oracle, MySQL, um, and I love databases. I really love them. It's It's been my calling. So when I started collecting in 1999, after Episode 1 came out, I naturally created a database for my collection. Mm-hmm. And uh, then I met Steve at 2004 Comic-Con in San Diego, and he was looking for an assistant to catalog his collection. I offered to do it for room and board. Uh, I thought it would take six months, and I moved here um, from Texas, which is my home. And uh, that was almost exactly 11 years ago. Oh, wow. Which I guess um, that that time span just goes to show the um, – I guess it uh, reveals the, the size of the collection. <laughs> How many pieces are exactly in the Rancho Obi-Wan collection? And I guess um, besides being part of Steve's collection – um, do they come from anywhere else? Do you, are you actively sub, uh, accepting submissions and adding new things, submissions as new films come out? Mm-hmm. Uh, yes, things are always arriving. Um, we don't know how many pieces are in the collection. I have huh. obviously not finished that catalog. Mm-hmm. Um, we can only estimate. Uh, when we were uh, entered into the Guinness Book of World Records in 2014, uh, we had to submit our database, and at that time, uh, the database co- contained around 92,000 pieces, and I estimated that was probably only 20% uh, complete. So we started saying anywhere between three and 500,000 pieces. Oh, wow. And keep in mind that that doesn't include just toys, which are packaged products that you can buy, but it collects a huge uh, – contains a huge collection of art and fan-made items. It co- contains newspaper articles, magazines, ephemera that you would normally just throw away, packaging that you would normally throw away from food and cereal and toothpaste, and, and every single thing that ever had Star Wars on it is here. Oh, wow. So we're always uh, always adding. Steve is collecting uh, mostly things that he just loves, which is fan art. Uh, we love trading cards, uh, food products, anything from Japan. We love stuff from Japan. And people also donate. Uh, we get a huge number of donations each year, mostly art. And um, 
any other thing that people are, are looking to find a home for. Oh, great. Now, I think if one thing might be of particular interest to, to our listeners, the uh, the library world out there, and I think based on your background, I'd really like to, 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 to kind of pick your brain about this, but how is the collection organized and cataloged? Is it is it by film? Is it by um, by by toy or by piece of artwork um how i guess what's the what are the nuts and bolts of that endeavor i love it when people ask me that it's rare that people ask me so i like to talk about it um there are a few different ways we do it um since we are a uh, a museum um we have um the collection organized in a way that tells a story for our visitors so when they first come into the museum, they encounter a hallway with all the original posters from the movie. So, you know, the poster was the first thing that you encountered um, as a fan back in 1977. So those are there. So it kind of takes you back when you see these posters. And then you go into the library. The books were some of the first things that you could uh, get as a collector. Uh, our library is huge, um, and it contains books from all over the world. And we have a room specifically for ephemera. We have binders with trading cards and postcards and um, magazine articles and drawers full of papers. And then we have a room full of poster files. We have about three to 4,000 different posters in the poster files. Um, then they come down into the main museum and we have organized it just with all of our favorite things. So there's not they're not particularly grouped by kind. Um, we have all the vintage things together, uh, the vintage Kenner, but just the stuff that Steve loves. And mostly all the things that Steve talks about on tour is items that have a story behind them. So stories about how he got them or stories how they were made, stories how they connect to the movies or fandom. Um, but behind the scenes, uh, we have a 3,500-square-foot warehouse where we are actively sorting the collection so I could finish that catalog, and we sort them by uh, manufacturer, the licensee. Mm -hmm. Okay. Now, um, you mentioned that this this is um, – Rancho Obi-Wan is a museum, so it is open to the public. Um, uh, is there a um, – from from my from my research and browsing of of your site, and this, there is like an educational component to um, your mission. Can you uh, discuss that a little bit? Yes, we give uh, free tours to school groups. So if your junior high has a field trip coordinator, they're mostly local schools. Um, they can bring a group of about fifteen kids here. And uh, Steve gives a brief tour to them, and we talk about things that the teacher wants us to talk about. Mostly it's inspiring topics, but sometimes we talk about technology and movie making, um, creativity, art. We really like to be able to tell kids that if you love Star Wars and you're really passionate about Star Wars, but perhaps you are not skilled as a movie maker and you want to be involved, just take the skill that you have and find a niche for it in the Star Wars universe like I did. I'm a database programmer. You would never think that a database programmer could be involved in Star Wars so heavily, but I am. And other people do the same thing. There's room for every different skill type in the world to be involved, and that's what we try to inspire in kids. 
Oh, absolutely. That's incredibly inspiring. Um, now, one thing I think before we leave, I have to ask, um, out of all the things that are in your vast Rancho Obi-Wan collection, is there one thing in particular that, that stands out? What is the, the most prized piece that you have? Uh, Steve uh, truly loves this one item. Um, it's the oldest item in the collection. It's a banner that was hand-painted by Ralph McQuarrie, who is the concept designer for Star Wars. Oh, wow. He hand-painted this banner, uh, and it was used in the very earliest conventions before Star Wars, uh, summer of 1976, when they were going directly to the fans to try to gain interest in this film. And this banner was just on the front of a plain eight-foot table like the rest of us use at comic conventions. And uh, they took it Comic-Con, World-Con. So it's really special, and it's hanging in the museum. Oh, awesome. And thank you so much for for speaking with us today at Dewey Decibel. Um, Like I said, uh, you have a dream job, and you work in a dream location. So I hope any of our listeners, um, if you have a chance, definitely visit Rancho Obi-Wan, and um, it sounds like it would be kind of a life-changing moment. And thank you so much. Definitely. You should come visit, and you can get all the information on how to do so at RanchoObiWan.org. Awesome. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thanks to Ann Newman from Rancho Obi-Wan for speaking with Dewey Decibel today. You can learn much more about the collection and the organization's mission at RanchoObiWan.org. Library programming is a popular way to motivate and engage patrons. In an ALA Publishing eLearning Solutions upcoming workshop, Hosting Your Own Comic-Con, the Ultimate All-Ages Program, you'll learn the ins and outs of hosting your own Comic-Con. Library programming experts and presenters Katie Lamantia and Emily Vinci will provide you with tips that will work for an array of budgets and library spaces. You'll learn exactly what a Comic-Con is, how it involves more than just comics and graphic novels, and why pop culture is relevant and reaches across demographics and ages to re-energize library programming. You'll lead this workshop with the tools to plan a Comic-Con tailored to your library. This 90-minute workshop takes place Thursday, March 23rd at 2.30 p.m. Eastern. That's Eastern time, people. Now, to learn more about this and to register for the workshop, visit alastore.ala.org slash comiccon. That's C-O-M-I-C-C-O-N. Each spring, Rancho Cucamonga Library in Rancho Cucamonga, California, hosts one of the largest Star Wars-themed library events in the U.S., Simply called Star Wars Day, the event draws thousands of people who gather to celebrate the films and their legacy. Alan Kalachi, a literacy librarian at Rancho Cucamonga, started the event 10 years ago with little more than an idea and some determination. Sometimes that's all the spark that it takes. Let's learn more. Alan, thanks so much for for, uh, talking to Dewey Decibel today. Uh, Let's talk a little bit about Star Wars Day at Rancho Cucamonga Library. Um, It's one of the largest Star Wars-themed events in the library, being held at the library in the U.S. Uh, Tell me a bit more about that. How did it start? Um, When did it start? I guess the big question is why. What uh, what led you to start uh, to found this uh, event celebrating Star Wars? Okay, well, thanks for having me on, Phil, to talk about Star Wars, which I love. it started, this will be our 10-year anniversary this May of the event. It basically started out as an act of desperation. 
Um, I was the only librarian available on Memorial Day weekend 10 years ago to do our family Saturday program. And so they said, we know you've never done a program before. You're, you're a literacy librarian, not a children's librarian. You're the only staff here. Can you do something, anything? And so I said, I love Star Wars. Um, can I do a Star Wars day? And great. They weren't going to reject probably anything I said at that point in time. We were so mm-hmm. short-staffed. Um, and so that's how it began. And so to tell you how long ago it was, using MySpace, I reached out to some of the local costuming groups, and I had them come uh, over for the event. And we usually get about 30 people for a family Saturday. We got in excess of 300. Wow. And it did come out of, like, a love of doing it. And I also have to mention my coworker, Adam Tuckerman, who was the tech person, has always been side-by-side in helping originate uh, the idea and help it grow over the years. Oh, great. Now, um, you said you're, you're going into your 10th year, and uh, just looking at some of your past years, some of your stats, you had over more than 2,000 people in 2015. So, yeah, this event has grown into something big and beautiful. Um, now, what's, with that many people, what's, what goes on? How do you, what type of events do you have uh, to entertain that many people? Um, the most popular thing is having a Darth Vader story time. Oh, great. So, so if you can picture uh, Darth Vader reading Where the Wild Things Are, complete with Chewbacca roars inserted and Chewbacca there, um, that's the most popular thing. We have lightsaber demonstrations. We had one of my favorite things we did a few years ago was a Jar Jar Binks dunk tank. It was <laughs> insanely popular. I can uh, imagine. Who wouldn't? Yeah. Um, and that was great. We do crafts like Yoda ears. Um, we have special guests like last year we had Billy D. Williams. Um, so it's just grown, and there's so many things you can do with it and so many ways you can take it. And every year we try to add different elements. We keep the popular stuff, and then we kind of expand on it. Oh, great. Now, with that many people, where um, – I'm assuming you're not holding it at the library itself. Where um, are you holding the uh, the Star Wars Day events? Yeah, our very first year we tried to hold it in the library, and our story theater could not hold 300 people. Mm-hmm. And the craft we had, which were lightsaber balloons, were not good for inside of a library environment as the kids were playing with them, balloons were popping, it was – insane mm-hmm. but uh our location we are fortunate enough to where we are connected to an outdoor mall with a big courtyard and a big uh celebration hall area that seats about 300 people we can do things in there too so with all of that we've got the space available to us to really even take it outside the library but at the same time Making sure everybody knows it's a library-sponsored event. Okay, with with that event this size, I'm sure that uh, once uh, you once the Star Wars Day event is done, you're probably planning for the next year's event on the very next day. With something this big and with this much to offer, uh, what what goes into what's the what are the planning what's the planning process like for you? What goes into throwing a Star Wars Day? Yeah, um, last year we had over 5,000 people, and we 
we're expecting even a couple thousand more than that this year. So um, you're 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 correct. We do start planning. The minute one ends, we start planning again. Uh, and so we've just been having meetings. We've been meeting with all kinds of different people. We're attached to a mall. We have to meet with them. Meet with all the costuming groups. Meet with our staff. So it is quite a lot of planning that takes place to do something on that size. That's not to say a library could do it on any size. You don't necessarily have to have all the space we have or all that. It takes a lot of staff and time to it. So I would not let that prevent any library from uh, creating their own Star Wars event. But for ours, it it is like a year-long you know, planning that goes into it which slowly ramps up as the event gets closer. I imagine so. Now, now, considering where you're located in, you know, right outside of, of, of Los Angeles, you are um, kind of in the shadows of the film industry. Um, now I'm just curious. I'm sure some of our listeners are probably curious. Um, have you heard from the from Lucasfilm? Have, has anyone been in touch with you about Star Wars Day? Have you received their blessing? And I guess in, as you're organizing this, do you have to, to reach out for them for some sort of, uh, I don't know, like maybe uh, rights considerations and stuff like that? Uh, great question, especially now that they've been bought out by Disney, um, mm-hmm. and which is a good thing. Uh, people say, uh-oh, Disney's going to – Lucasfilm is going to stomp <laughs> on you. But um, – the thing to know, and this is also for libraries on a budget, all the costuming groups have the blessing of Lucasfilm and Disney, but they can only do it for charity events. They can go to libraries and hospitals, but if you have a stormtrooper group or whatever trying to charge you, that is not a legitimate group. So they're mm-hmm. very supportive of the library because basically we're supporting all the Star Wars books and graphic novels. I'm sure every – library in the country probably has a Star Wars section. Sure, so they yeah. want to work they want to work with you but like with any bureaucracy that size things change every year. We want the Star Wars logo in red this year. This is a logo you can use. We don't know what the reasoning is behind it. We just send them our flyers or if we're going to do a bookmark and they usually sign right off on it. And I believe if you go to the Lucasfilm website, they even have the person who's in charge of those kind of outreach relations or go to the 501st website. That can work with libraries. 501st is a costuming group. They do tons of these events. They know the procedures, and they will work closely with you, and they will do most of that heavy lifting. Yeah, it seems like, if anything, um, by contacting Lucasfilm, um, not only are you um, staying safe to make sure you're doing it all right, but also I think um, when you're talking to your – when a library is talking to your to their patrons, they can say, hey, we got Lucasfilm's blessing on this. This is a, a, an official Star Wars event. So if anything, it, it's it's uh, good all around to, uh, to, to, to contact them. Yeah, and the other good thing to make it to where it's – you want to guarantee that rubber stamp – if you do it in October, which is their big national Star Wars Reads campaign, mm-hmm. or if you hold your event in May and tie it into the whole May the 4th campaign, Absolutely. they really uh, encourage that kind of timeline, too. Yeah. You had mentioned uh, Billy D. Williams, Lando Calrissian, was a, was a guest in a past Star Wars day. Have you had any other people involved in the production of the films? Um 
as guests? Yeah, we've had um, quite a few. We've had voice actors from, like, the Clone Wars cartoons. Billy Dio is obviously our biggest. We've had Kyle Newman, who directed the movie Fanboys, if anybody's familiar with that. Oh, yeah. We have had some Star Wars novelists and people connected to doing some of the Star Wars comic books who've been a great fit because they are actually Star Wars writers and literature. So they're very happy. We have the advantage that we're, like you said, we're in the shadow of L.A. to where a lot of these people are fairly local. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think even if you can't get somebody of that stature, if you're a library somewhere in the Midwest, just having a local artist come and teach the kids how to draw Star Wars figures um, it's been our thing that it's cool if it's somebody who's done some stuff, but you know what? If it's an eight-year-old, they just want to learn how to draw Yoda. Mm-hmm. And so you yeah, don't great. necessarily no. need that. Yeah, no, no, we've we've gone over a, a, a few things that libraries can do if they wanted to, to start their own uh, Star Wars theme event. Do you have any other type of tips? Because um, you've, like you said, you have, you have 10 years under your belt. Any words of wisdom that you can impart? Um, I would take baby steps. Don't try to do an event for like X amount. Start slow. If you have a smaller multi-purpose room, ticket it to avoid that chaos. Um, even if you're doing a smaller version for like 100 people per se, um, start a little bit early. And I think with any program, Star Wars or otherwise, I think if you have people on staff that are big Star Wars fans, by all means, use that passion and energy that they have. Even if it could be a page, it could be a clerk, somebody doesn't necessarily do programming. But if they are huge Star Wars fans, those are excellent resources to have on board. Oh, awesome. Now, um, Star Wars Day, it, it's, a, it's a multi-day event. It's a two-day event, right? Yeah, we've done some that are weekends, and we've done some that are just like one day. This year we're going to do it over the course of one day, but it's going to go probably into the evening. So it'll be like a... 10 to 12 hour event. Yeah, and that's a Memorial Day weekend, right? Coming up? Yeah, Saturday, May 27th. We're going to go from like 11 to 6 will be the library portion. And then there'll be probably some nighttime activities that go to probably after 8 o'clock. Oh, awesome. And, and what's the URL for our listeners if they wanted to, uh, to check out uh, or get some more information about uh, your Star Wars Day event? Okay, let me get that for you real quick. <laughs> exact <laughs> URL. Now it's www. dot city of rc c i t y o f r c as in Rancho Cucamonga. dot u s forward slash library. And I'm sure if they can just. Went to Google Star Wars Day Ranch Cucamaga, who pop right up there at the top too. Um, right, that Alan, might be thanks, the easier route. <laughs> might be the easier way. Um, Alan, thanks so much for for talking to Dewey Decibel. Um, if I'm ever in Ranch Cucamaga, I'm going to check out your Star Wars Day event because, as a as a child of the '70s um, who grew up on Star Wars, um, I think it would I'd fit right in. So, uh, <laughs> thanks a lot, and and for our listeners as well. If if you're in the area, uh, or if you want some more tips, uh, check out uh, Star Wars Day uh, this uh, coming uh, Memorial Day weekend. Thanks again to Alan Kalachi from Rancho Cucamonga Library. 
hit those uh, URLs. Alan threw at us in the end for some more information on Star Wars Day coming up this Memorial Day weekend. 50-plus fandom programs, planning festivals and events for tweens, teens, and adults. What is this? I know you're intrigued by this title already, I can tell. This is a book coming up in June from ALA Editions, and it's full of ready-to-go programs and events that will help public libraries give their fans who are passionate about genres, characters, games, and book series, will give them plenty of reasons to return to the library again and again. Now, fandom programming can require planning across departments, with tie-ins to collections and community partnerships, and targeted marketing. But the fun content cooked up by the three authors in this guide, and that's uh, Amy Alessio, Katie Lamantia, and Emily Vinci, uh, they, they really make it easy to stay organized every step of the way, with uh, their events broken down into components that streamline planning and facilitate coordination. Adaptable for a wide range of ages, this resource covers all the basics of how to host a fandom event, including prep time, length of program, number of patrons, budget, and supplies needed. Uh, they suggest uh, an age range, whether it's tweens, teens, millennials, and older adults, for all the programs. And they also offer ways to tailor it to different groups. Uh, they present uh, imaginative and engaging programming, such as uh, Fifty Shades of Hot Books, hmm, old school video games, women in comics, creating steampunk outfits, superhero school, and many more. And I've heard that there might be some Star Wars stuff in this. Uh, They also provide ideas for perennial fan favorites like Harry Potter, horror stories, and sports. And they also give tips on how to stay current with what's popular and ways to incorporate these popular activities like cosplay, trivia, and uh, movie-yoki into the program. Filled with uh, projects and ideas that can be used with a variety of fandoms and interests, this programming book will ensure both quick planning and great turnout. And again, this 50-plus fandom programs, planning festivals and events for tweens, teens, and adults by Amy Alessio, Katie Lamonti, and Emily Vinci. And you can find that at the ALA Store. That's alastore.ala.org in June of 2017. When we think about Star Wars, at least for most people, it's the story itself that comes to mind first. And it's, um, as we discussed earlier, there's a reason for that. It's the, uh, the archetype story, uh, the hero's journey, the struggle of good versus evil, the story of the big guy versus the little guy. Um, but when we, when we, if we're being honest, uh, when we think about Star Wars, we think we think of the characters. We think of Darth Vader. We think of Luke Skywalker, Han Solo, Chewbacca, the droids, um, Princess Leia, and even up to the, through the newer films, Princess Amidala or uh, Jar Jar Binks. Um, but when we remove those characters, those those recognizable characters from the story, we have to ask ourselves, why do we think of them? And it's because of how they look. It's their their makeup and, uh, most importantly, their costuming. And uh, I think that's what sets Star Wars apart from many other sci-fi films and films in general, is that you have this, the costumes themselves uh, embrace and symbolize so many themes uh, about the Star Wars universe, uh, allegiance and betrayal, honor and virtue, power and submission, all of these traits come through in the costuming. And that's really the crux of this uh, new traveling exhibit that's uh, going across the country from the, by the Smithsonian. It's called Star Wars and the Power of Costume. And um, I sat down recently with Saul Drake. He's the project manager of the exhibit. And we talked about uh, those things. We talked about the power of costuming in the Star Wars universe and what um, goes into putting such an elaborate touring exhibit together. Enjoy.
Saul, thanks so much for uh, for calling the Dewey Decimal Podcast. Um, now, you are the project director for Star Wars and the Power of Costume. And, like, just from doing my research and looking at everything uh, of your 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 online uh presence everything for this for this exhibition it's it's absolutely fascinating because i think of any more than any other film series probably or, you know in the history of cinema there's no other series that the, the costuming is as iconic as the story itself um you can look at any of these costumes and you know the, the film immediately and you can almost know what film you're in, what, what portion of the story you're in. Um, so it's just, I, I'm fascinated by this entire exhibition. I'm just curious how, um, this is a partnership between the Smithsonian Institution's Traveling Exhibition, uh, the Lucas Museum of Narrative Art, and Lucasfilm. Of those three entities, um, how, I guess, who, who started this project? Um, how did this exhibition originate? Yeah. Well, this is our third uh, exhibition collaboration with Lucasfilm. Uh, early on in the I think late 1990s, early 2000s, we did a, uh, a a show called Star Wars and the Magic of Myth, mm-hmm. and that really delved into the uh, the story of Star Wars and uh, the hero's journey, popularized by Joseph Campbell. And that was a really you know um, popular exhibition during the time. And uh, we felt that the collaboration was so good. Hey, let's do another. And uh, the next one was um, the Art of the Starfighter. And so we um, had a, I think, a full-scale model of a Star Wars starfighter, along with other associated material. And then now comes uh, Star Wars and the Power of Costume. So we definitely had a, a long working relationship, and one that's quite fruitful. We're, we're very interested, the Smithsonian. We're very interested in the impact that just the the ideas, uh, obviously the costumes, the characters. All this iconic stuff that is uh, surrounding uh, Star Wars, we're very interested in telling that story. It's a part of Americana that uh, I think touches so many lives, not only here in the United States, but also worldwide. Yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah, I, I noticed that the uh, the exhibition, it's divided into you call nine chapters. Correct. Um, can you uh, talk about that a little bit? Because it's um, it kind of... Uh, you know, it goes to the, the Star Wars story, but also the, the details and yeah. how the, the costumes are created. Because um, there's like uh, more than 60 or so pieces in the exhibit. Um, can you um, talk a bit about um, how they're presented? Sure. Um, well, with this particular exhibition, we really wanted to key in on the artistic process. Uh, how does an idea become reality? And we didn't necessarily want to pay specific attention to the actual characters. Now, that's really hard to do (laughs) uh, for a franchise like Star Wars. But we wanted to, as I said before, talk about and uh, sort of uncover, dig deeper into the backstory of how does an idea become reality. And so talking about those those multitude of individuals, craftsmen, uh, you know, craftspeople, artists, costumers, you know, George Lucas himself, whatever, what are his influences when he's uh, talking to these graphic artists about his ideas about what this uh, particular uh, out-of-this-world character should look like? Um, so we really wanted to focus in on, well, how do we tell that story? And that's kind of what led us into chapters. And so the specific chapters, and one I'll highlight is the very first one. It's called um, Jedi versus Sith, Form and Function. And, you know, everybody knows the characters that 
comprise the Jedi. Everybody knows the characters that comprise the Sith. But we, what we really wanted to focus in on, well, how do those costumes make a Jedi? How do those costumes make a Sith? And what we've really focused in on is, well, they have to be able to move uh, very well in those, uh, just simply for the fact that they're so dynamic. You know, they're they're doing all these scenes that are very action-packed, all these lightsaber battles. And so we really wanted to delve into well, what makes that costume unique in that regard to what the purpose of that character is. And so juxtaposing that uh, between uh, the royalty, uh, you know, we, re- we focus in on, well, what does royalty look like? And it's very different from, obviously, Jedi, Sith, form and function. Those costumes are very, very different and unique in their own special way, but at the same time sort of give you a, a idea of what it, what it actually looks like to be a Jedi, what it actually looks like to be someone who would be considered uh, royal in the uh, sort of Star Wars uh, society. Mm-hmm. Now, um, where um, I guess where did these uh, costumes come from? Are they part of the Smithsonian collection, or are these a part of uh, the Lucas um, uh, Museum? Or are these still are some of these costumes still being in? Or are they still in use? Uh, most of the costumes are not in use, um, just simply for the fact that they are representative of the original trilogy and the prequels. Okay. We have some Episode Seven costumes that, at one point, we were thinking we had to return them because they actually came from uh, from shooting on site, and so we thought we had we might have to return those. But mm-hmm. um, uh, it looks like we might have those for a little bit longer, so those might be retired from uh, actually uh, being worn. But the interesting thing is, is that they they are all uh, screen worn. These are the original costumes that, say, for instance, Alec Guinness wore his Obi Wan Kenobi robes. This, that's his actual costume that he wore uh, back in the day. These costumes came from uh, Skywalker Ranch, and on Skywalker Ranch, um, a property owned by George Lucas, um, mm-hmm. uh, there's an archive out there, and that's where all of his movie ephemera uh, is housed. And p- part of that, the archives, is what we affectionately call it, is, is part of the Lucas Museum of Narrative Art. That's kind of where their storage facility is, where they keep, um, like I said before, all those uh, memorable uh, movie uh, artifacts. Um, so that's where they came from. Um, now, since these were screen-worn um, costumes, uh, what condition were they in? Did you have to do any restorative work, either to the Smithsonian or, or, or uh, before they before they came to the exhibit? Uh, what uh, what are the, I mean, I'm sure they're in pristine condition now, but I was just wondering what they were like when when you got them. Yeah, that's a really great question. Um, so the some of the, some of what we we determined on when we selected uh, those specific costumes was the suitability for travel. And mm-hmm. so um, the physical, um, you know, the way that the costumes would be able to hold up with the rigors of traveling on a domestic tour um, is very much on the forefront of object safety and maintenance for not only us, the Smithsonian, but also uh, the Lucas Museum of Narrative Art. Uh, when we got the costumes, uh, they're really in pristine form, and that's really a tribute to the um, the individuals who work at the archives. I mean, they adhere to the highest uh, museum and object uh, care and safety, uh, similar to guidelines that we adhere to here at the Smithsonian. So they're really in good shape. Some of these costumes, you know, uh, 
basically some of the early ones, and I'll go back to Alec McGinnis, uh, his Obi-Wan Kenobi costume. You know, when he finished uh, the movie, the, the first movie, um, which would be episode, uh, I think, uh, four? Uh, yeah. Yeah. Um, so, you know, they, they, they didn't really realize uh, in 2016, 2017, that there would be a traveling exhibition or much less uh, these costumes would be held in, you know, perpetuity in a museum somewhere. And so they really, really weren't focused in on um, keeping these things pristine. But luckily for us, you know, there was some forward-thinking individuals early on um, associated with George Lucas who who cared for these things. And then eventually they made their way into the uh, uh, the, the Skywalker Ranch archives where they really take care of, preserve them, um, you know, like I said before, to the highest uh, museum quality. And uh, you can really tell that, you know, the – Alec McGinnis' costume, the Obi-Wan Kenobi original costume, looks like he came off the sands of Tunisia back in 1977. It looks like mm-hmm. it's just been worn. So so they really are um, in great shape. But that's not to say that um, there is some that were, uh, you know, one of a kind um, that just we couldn't get into the show simply for the fact um, that they just – they were in bad shape or they really wouldn't hold up. And a good example of that is um, – uh, Billy D. Williams Lando Calrissian costume. We really wanted to have that in the show. It, it's a beautiful costume, but it's one of a kind, and unfortunately, it wasn't in the best shape to be able to, um, you know, to handle the rigors of travel from city to city throughout our tour. Oh, that's too bad. Um, yeah, one thing I, I know. I have yeah. a great tidbit of, of that story. You know, when the this is referred to me by the archives uh, employees when they got in um, that costume. This is Landau Calrissian in costume. They're obviously checking it over uh, for any wear and tear, um, you know, doing a condition report. And what they found in one of the pockets was some lozenges that Billy D. Williams would uh, would suck on to keep his voice active between takes. So that's kind of a <laughs> kind of hmm. a fun little tidbit with that costume when they actually got it into the archives. A little bit of uh, Billy D. Williams trivia there. Oh, nice. Uh, one thing I, I was I w- I've been curious about it, it really struck me when I saw Rogue One last month uh, when it came out. Um, if you, you look at the costuming from Rogue One, uh, or, and I guess the production design of the film itself, it it looks a little. I don't want to use the word dated, but you can see some continuity between Rogue One and the first. I guess it would be Episode Four. Star Wars film, it does have like a bit of a 70s look to it, like the, the, the costuming, the continuity lines up. Did you, I don't know if this is something you can, you can speak to, did you notice that as you um, were putting the exhibition together, did any of the costuming, were they reflective of the era in which they were filmed? Oh, absolutely. Um, you know, uh, just particularly the bulk of the costumes that we have, obviously from the classics and uh, some of the prequels. You can definitely tell there's a huge difference between those two, and, and and you know there's not a lot of I guess in the movies there's not a lot of continuity, but what I would say is that you can definitely tell there's um, in the costumes there's there's difference differences that you could tell whether or not it was the technology at the time or just simply a reflection of the costuming budget. So a good example, um, and I'll give an example of of both um, the classics and the prequels is. You know, um, uh, uh, William Prowse, Darth Vader costume, mm-hmm. you know, this iconic costume. You, If you remember, there's a, a chest piece 
on on that costume. Yeah. And you know, in the movies, it looks this like this high tech sort of apparatus. But when we looked a little bit closer, and um, we could tell that all it is is a is a painted uh, piece of wood. You can tell by looking at you can see the wood marks and you know it's very primitive looking almost but you know like I said when it when it's on screen it looks like this uh, this high tech piece of equipment and, and so that's again kind of a reflection maybe of the the budget during that time period they really were trying to um, scrimp and save and mm-hmm. you know just try to do um, you know make a costume with what they could. Uh, and so juxtapose that with, you know, some of the uh, prequel costumes, and one in particular is some of Padme Amidala's, uh, Natalie Portman's um, uh, royalty costumes. Oh, absolutely. I mean, they, they are – and this really doesn't show up on screen either. I mean, some of these costumes show up for like 30 seconds, but when you get to see them up close, uh, the, there's no uh, – there's it, it's just – some of them are one of a kind. I mean, pieces of art, the attention to detail is unparalleled. The attention, you know, the craftsmanship, the quality. I mean, it's really amazing, and so that's kind of the fun of the, our show is that we have these costumes, these one of a kind costumes, so very close to the visitor, so they can look at these details and really appreciate what you know what goes into them and how they were constructed. And again, with the prequels, I think that's kind of a reflection of the budget that, uh, during that time period. You know, they, I'm sure the budget for costumes was. Uh, much larger than it was for the classics, but mm-hmm. each in their own right, I think are are very iconic and um, just really fun to to take a look at and, and see what's going on with them. Absolutely. Now I notice that you have a, a an entire chapter devoted to the droids. Can you yes. talk about that, that a bit? How does that? How do the droids and the the droid uh, design? How does that work into the overall costuming um, exhibition? Sure. Well, they're costumes. Um, you know, Anthony Daniels. Uh, I guess. He, I guess you, that's right. Yeah. I guess there is a person <laughs> inside of there. Anthony I guess Daniels, you, you forget yeah, that. He, yeah, he is the only person to, to uh, you know, to be featured in uh, every one of the Star Wars movies, and including mm-hmm. the most recent one. Uh, obviously, you can't see his face. He is C-3PO, but there's a man in there. Yeah. Uh, also, with R2-D2, Kenny Baker, he actually was inside of the R2-D2 yeah. uh, apparatus. The fun tidbit about that is when you see uh, R2-D2, um, he has two looks, one uh, with three legs. Yeah. Uh, that's when he's uh, an, a, a robotic apparatus kind of zooming around there. But when he's on two legs and he's kind of uh, bouncing back and forth, that's Kenny Baker in the, uh, in the costume. That's his costume. And so that fits really nicely into um, the idea of, well, um, you know, these are costumes. You might not necessarily think in regards that, you know, the uh, um, the materials themselves are made to look so very much metallic and like yeah. robots. But in actuality, you know, they're very flexible. You know, they, there's, there's people inside of them uh, making these things animate. So that's the fun thing to think about as well. Now you have it's more than more than sixty pieces. Is there a, a, a particular highlight to the collection that, or I guess what's what's your favorite piece uh, in, in the exhibition? Sure. Well, my favorite piece is um, is C-3PO. I, I just you know when I uh, remember as a child watching Star Wars, uh, I was just so uh, fascinated by um, just that. I mean, and when I found out that there was a man inside of there, it really kind of blew my mind. And so I always <laughs> Sort of carried that fascination forward, 
But when researching the show, you know, revealing what George Lucas's um, his in, in, uh, his inspiration, which was um, uh, Metropolis, um, the the droid in there, and trying mm-hmm. to and getting a sense of how he sort of develops these ideas based on uh, his uh, extensive research, um, his influence that come from all over the place. Uh, it's really fun to sort of peel away those layers to really get a sense of where he's coming from to communicate to those graphic artists who then draw um, various forms of what C-3PO or any other uh, costume character could look like. And then eventually coming to the point where he puts a fabuloso stamp on there, and that's a real thing. He says, this is good, and he has a stamp, which he still retains. And he, some of the graphic art what we have in the show actually have these fabuloso stamps on them. Mm-hmm. And from that point, they go to the, the costume shop to be constructed. So so originally, yeah, C-3PO is my favorite. Um, and then getting a chance to research um, and really peel back the veneer of what makes that costume a reality is just was a real treat for me. I think, you know, in terms of the rarity, and this is kind of an understated one, but we have a um, an Endor Stormtrooper costume. Hmm. And some people might think, well, you know, Stormtroopers, they're, they're numerous. You know, why is that one so rare? Well, it, the funny thing about it is that, you know, these costumes, as I said before, they weren't really necessarily um, – meant to be preserved for a museum audience in 2017. And so a lot of these uh, original Stormtrooper outfits are very rare. And the reason being is because as, you know, the Stormtroopers get in all these battles, they're flying around and rolling around and getting beat up, basically. And so a lot of that material just doesn't last. And so um, so this one is very rare. Um, and you can really tell the wear and tear that the actor who is inside the costume went through. There's scrapes and nicks and cracks, pieces that are potentially missing. Um, it's really beat up. And it's really fun to sort of think about how much wear and tear these actors actually go through to, you know, create these scenes. And now we have this one really rare costume um, to show, you know, that, uh, you know, that action, that action bit. Oh, awesome! Now, um, if our listeners wanted to see Star Wars and the Power of Costume, where can they where can they find the exhibit right now? It's actually at the uh, Denver uh, Museum of Art, the uh, Denver okay. Art Museum, I should say, and it's going to be there till um, April. And then, what actually this uh, this week on Monday, our next venue, which is the Cincinnati Museum Center, just made their public announcement, and uh, so we'll be in Cincinnati. And their opening is uh, May 25th. Oh, awesome! That that uh, yeah, the museum center is in a beautiful uh, uh, the old Union Terminal downtown Correct. Cincinnati. Yeah, we're it's, really excited. Really yeah, excited a, to go there. It's a it's a beautiful spot. So yeah, if any of our listeners, if you're in Denver or in Cincinnati, please definitely check this out. Saul, it was great talking to you today. Um, thanks so much for for calling in and talking to Dewey Decibel about Star Wars. Oh, absolutely! It was my pleasure. Thanks. Many thanks to Saul Drake from the Smithsonian. And that's, uh, once again, Star Wars and the Power of Costume. And you can catch that uh, coming up in Cincinnati, Ohio, and uh, museums across the country. Don't miss it.
Well, that wraps another episode of the Dewey Decibel Podcast. I'd like to thank our guests, and uh, most importantly, I'd like to uh, to thank you. Thanks for joining us as we uh, geeked out about Star Wars for the past hour. Um, I think that we can all agree that Star Wars, it's, it's more than a film. It uh, occupies a very distinct and, I think, important place in our culture, and it's something that we can really look to and learn from moving forward in the next few years. So uh, thank you, and, and thanks, Star Wars. Um, also, I'd like, to, I'd like to dedicate this episode to Carrie Fisher. I know we didn't uh, talk about her much this past episode, but she was there, and she was a presence, and uh, her loss was, uh, was, was big for uh, Star Wars fans, and I think uh, film fans, and, 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 and the world in general. So this one goes out to you, Carrie. Uh, join us next month for a new episode of the Dewey Decimal Podcast, and uh, we'll be looking for you there. And also, please, find us on Facebook, find us on Twitter, and uh, leave us some comments, leave us some questions. We want to hear from you. Uh, if there's any show topics you, uh, you have on your mind, please send them your way. We want to know more. So thanks once again. I'm Phil Moorhart uh, from American Libraries Magazine, and this was the Dewey Decibel Podcast. Mm-hmm.